You're listening to Program 6 of the Norvision Podcast, recorded to leave an oral history legacy of the journey of the Norvision Project. KCLR. In the sixth program in the Norvision series, we explore the uplands area of the Nor and look at farming and the river and first visit Clannachenny, a small village in North Tipperary, which is close to the source of the River Noor. There I meet Michael Costigan. I go as Michael Costigan at the village, Clannachenny. There's another Michael Costigan. There's a couple of them, actually. But Costigan is a common name here around. I've lived here all my life. I was born just at one side of the village. I only moved to the other side, mm-hmm. so I even got closer to the river than I was. I really liked the place. It's very peaceful here, very close-knit community. Neighbours help out one another and, yeah, it's very nice, very nice. We love the river. The river flows here almost through my yard. And um, from our earliest childhood, we've done everything. We dammed it to swim in it in the summer and played in it and caught pinkeens and little trout. And, of course, in the month after the first floods in October... November, when we get the first floods, the salmon come up. Really? And Would the they trout. come up this far? Would or they? they come up even... They, it's unbelievable. I've seen salmon beds this year a mile above the village. You'd be, you'd be within a mile and a half or so of the source of it. And they come up very strong this year now. Um, I remember being out there in the yard one evening years ago and I couldn't know what was going on in the river. There was an awful lot of splashing and flapping and that just near the yard. And I went down to investigate and it was a cock and a hen. And I was told after that that they do that when they're mating. But uh, it's lovely to see them now. And the sea trout come first, come before the salmon. Right. And then the salmon come. You'd have to have at least two floods. And like when the floods come, the river would be very strong now to fill the banks. And um, after the floods then you'd see the beds. See where the, the oh, oh, it's very easy to see them. They root out a barrel full of, of gravel out of the bottom of the, and you'd see the fresh gravel. Clannachenny is halfway between Templemore and Ross Cray, and as mentioned earlier, it's very close to the source of the Noor. The Noor only rises about two and a half miles upstream. If you walked upstream from here, you come to where it rises in a place we call Kendy's Well Field. It rises out of a well or a spring. But actually, the actual area where the Nore rises is bend off. But it's, it's all part of the Devil's Bit. Now, of course, like all rivers, the, there's a difference of opinion. Some people say it rises farther up. But I was a postman in this area for 35 or 6 years, and an old woman that lived up there beside it, she told me that... If you go up in the heart of the summer or in the month of August, September, all the streams farther up are dried up. And she said, this spring or well is still putting out water, like, yeah. you know. So she yeah. said, that is the true source of the Noor. It's, it's very weak then as it comes down along. It's it's very weak little stream. And before it reaches our village here, there's two good tributaries flow into it. One of them is called the Shanatluan River and the other is the Steels Park River. And they hit it just before it reaches the village and that gives it a good, uh, you know, bit of momentum. Yeah. Now between here and the source, there was actually three mills on it. And you see, it comes down into the village 
through a glacier track. It, it's a natural V-shaped track and the river flows the bottom of it. So the first mill on it, which has been completely restored now as a dwelling, the plan was to dam the to dam what we call the file. This glacier tract is known as the file because it's shaped like a file. Okay. And um, they were going to dam that and that would feed the mill. Now, I don't know how much work that mill done. Hollywell Mill is the name of it. And then there was another one down about a mile farther and then uh, there was one here in the village which there's no, no trace of it now either. It was well harnessed, you know, even yes. in its infancy. Yeah, of course, you know, you probably know that the shore only rises, they say, a stone's throw, but you'd want to be a good thrower, I'd say. But it's not farther, much farther over in the Devil's Bish again, the shore rises. And that river in its infancy has a flax mill, and that's still standing. The Nor and the Shore are two of the three sisters who, as Michael mentioned, rise in and around the same area. The other sister, the Barrow, rises in the Sleeve Blooms. If you were a stream around the uplands area, a little rock or a dip in the ground could mean the difference between draining into either the Nor or the Shore. Where they couldn't get a fall to one river, they took it to the other one. You and know. is there many little streams around here now? Well, th- there would be, yes, there would be... Um uh, springing to mind now there's three strong ones here around the village they, they don't go dry unless a very very dry year now the Deakin actually flows here near the village but that goes to the shore is one and then the Steels Park River comes to the Nore and the Shanatloon River comes to the Nore Steels Park is an unusual name isn't it for yes it yeah. was actually it was a man by the name of Steel I believe he actually had a bacon factory back, I don't know when, he used to take bacon, I believe, to Dublin by Harson Cart. Steel was his name and we just know it as Steel's Park. Michael does a bit of work breaking horses for carriage driving and he's also a dairy farmer. I'm a small farmer and uh, not much ploughing around here and uh, not much tillage but... Um, Darien, Sucklin, good grazing land, good fattening land. As part of the community engagement strand of Norvision, farm walks were organised up and down the Nor catchment. Michael participated on the one organised in Clonakenny by Field Officer Brendan MacSorley. The very first farm walk we went to was in Clonakenny, uh, up near the Devil's Bith. It was, was lovely and it was me and my eggs went up there. And uh, we were talking to a lovely um, woman called Brigitte. She she helped us, and we kind of learned as we went along because it was it was at that stage very informal, and I suppose the whole project was informal. We were trying our best to engage the farmers and to not be too authoritative in saying this is wrong and this is wrong, and more so, you know, just have a conversation with how we can improve our own farms, and you know what helps. Uh, biodiversity or what helps the environment in any way so that, that's where we started in Clannacanny um, from there we went on to many different places from we were up in Mount Rath we were in Bennett's Bridge we were in uh, we were all over the north the north catchment we tried our best to get a good spread the uplands part of it was very much to engage the farmers and to kind of introduce the Norvision in a positive light to 
the catchment and the farmers within it. We had a great feedback really from the start. It was um, we had a few things to say as we as we were talking, but really a lot of the conversation came from the farmers. You know, the knowledge that they have is is probably far far more uh, far more vast than than my my knowledge or even Mags's knowledge will ever be because because they you know they've been farming their own land. And so, yeah, that as soon as we started talking about it, it really came through that they had a care uh, for their land and a care for leaving their land in a better state than they found it. And that was at the end of every farm walk, we had a, we had a little survey and it was a few uh, closed questions like, you know, pick out a few of these words that are important to you in your farm. And then at the end, we had a few open open ones. And a lot of them, yeah, were saying just that, that their most important thing is is looking at them or looking at their farm and improving it for not just their own farmer for their own um, animals but also for the environment as a whole and to make it in the more catchment a, more, a better place to live in the farm walks was the, the the very first part of the project we later went on to develop them farmers in a few different training courses and our end goal is to develop an EIP that they can uh, sign up to and help and get funded to do these things that we suggested. Because as much as farmers do love uh, love their land and they're trying their best to improve it all the time, it's a business as well, and they can't they can't be given up, you know, land for free because it's just not going to work that way. And some farmers in the North Catchment are struggling as it is without trying, you know without giving giving up uh, you know buffer zones beside the rivers and stuff like that because that's all you know land is money and mm-hmm. so what the IPEs were, tr- were trying to do is uh, actually get the farmers funding for doing these things that they want to do anyway mm-hmm. but it makes it profitable or makes it at least neutrally profitable so that that they can uh, they can do it yeah. um, without without suffering they pointed out uh, natural habitats and uh, trees and fauna that grows along the bank of the river of course if you're a real tidy farmer you have all that cut away but where it was left that's what they wanted leave it alone mm. for bees and for birds and you know they said the natural leave it natural that's what they like now yeah. uh, i think now with the new rounded cap and all that this is what they're going to really go for uh, so I get the impression then that wild is the way to go to support ecology. Just leave it alone. This is Mags Morrissey, who worked as an ecologist on the Norvision farm walks. You know, I remember going into one farm and the farmyard was immaculate um, and he had sprayed and kept the place really tidy, which I suppose wouldn't be wildlife friendly, but it was really tidy. But then where he stopped spraying, you could see the difference then in the number of species. And we're just talking about a farm track. So the centre of uh, a farm track. So the difference. And it was just it was interesting. And I think everyone was like um, at that walk was kind of going, oh, wow. Because you don't sometimes stand back and have a look at just the very ordinary, like I'm talking about, you know, plantain and daisies and maybe dandelions. So nothing spectacular, just ordinary, but I suppose spectacular in its own way. So it was that sort of thing we looked at. We looked at habitats along the side of the river. And again, you know, tidy farmers versus farmers who maybe are not, don't spend as much time uh, clearing and tidying in that so uh, most farmers I have to say were really interested in that and 
Hedgerows, I, I just have a love of hedgerows from an early age and that. So we looked at lots of hedgerows and just the difference in the quality of a hedgerow, um, the difference in the species from maybe one part of the catchment, like the uplands, the whole way down. You know, you might have gorse and that in, in an upland area where you wouldn't have that in a hedgerow um, down through the catchment. So uh, lots of people had loads of questions about, you know, maybe how you'd encourage species or or they just wanted to know they've been looking at a plant for like the last 30 years it's been grown in the banks of the river every single summer and they just wanted to know what it was then over near Coon actually West Kilkenny there was Himalayan balsam and some invasive species in that and people are really fascinated actually because it is you know okay, you don't want that but they have the whole uh, ecology of the balsam and how it's taken over and the damage it does is really interesting and what it does to the riverbanks. And while invasive species are the second biggest factor in the loss of biodiversity, habitat loss is the number one factor. And the continued protection of hedgerows on farms is important in promoting biodiversity. They're hugely important for wildlife and in a country where I think it's just over 70% of the land mass is actually in agriculture. They account for a massive amount of our uh, wildlife habitats. Mm-hmm. But I like a little hedgerow that's a couple of three or four foot high or something and is really thin and, you know, there's no shelter in it for animals. That's not much use. So if you have a hedgerow that's about a metre and a half is probably good height. Um, that's thick at the base um, that you can't see through it you don't want to be able to see through it um, because any little bird that's going to live in a hedgerow wants protection so he can't be too exposed otherwise he's going to get picked up by some predator yeah and there's loads of like you know small little damp areas in the corner of a field they're hugely important for wildlife you get all sorts of things living there and then when you get a couple of you know species of insect living there then the birds will feed off those and then the next you know so um, and that's all part of our, our biodiversity which we want to hold on to so, so for the last 50 years like we've lost I don't know probably thousands of miles of hedgerow um, which is quite sad I suppose to see and you can understand why it's happened and everything but um, and it's a big undertaking to put back in you know a couple of miles of hedge it does it takes quite a lot of effort Um, so I think it's really important that we look after the ones we have and also ideally on a farm you wouldn't cut all of the hedges together so you'd have a rotation so you do certain fields one year so that they're at different stages so there's availability of food source for pollinators or birds or whatever and actually most hedges you know as you see along the roadsides they're topped and they're absolutely dead straight at the top but again that's not what we want either actually but you know I suppose people need education on this Um, what you want is that they're pointed at the top because if you just cut the top off you expose the whole inside so you'll get some rot in in the um, shrubs um, but also a bird can't nest in there with no shelter from the elements or from predators Over the course of our lives, we all encounter change. And for farmers, it must seem that there is a constant changing, what with new schemes and rules coming down, not just from national policy, but also from EU policy. It's changed a lot since even in the last 20 years. I mean, with the new farm regulations now, they don't want cattle drinking out of the river or walking in the river or um, don't want you spreading manure or or anything near the river, keep away from the river. Yeah. Um, which, like, I I agree with. Like, I, I, I'd like to see that way. I mean, I remember 
well, I remember well going back over 50 years now, um, the done thing was everything went to the river. Yeah. You know, even our local creamery at four o'clock in the evening, the river would flow white after the, after the creamery being washed out. But that happened everywhere. People didn't know. And a fella told me here since that a bucket of milk does as much harm in the river as a bucket of slurry. Would you experience floods much up here? No, we haven't. The the, the flood plain, there is a flood plain farther down. Um, actually, the real flood plain is in your own county, in Kilkenny. We get away very light now, but down in Derry Moor, as they call it, it flows on down and there's a flat plain there. It's a bog area. It would flood there, it would go on the land a lot, but not up here, very little up here. The flood rises up here quick, it would fill the banks, but then it goes equally as quick. In a couple of hours it could be gone. Lucky enough that way, we, ha- we don't have flooding. For some people, living and working along the river can be very stressful when there's floods. Dennis Drennan is chair of the Farm and Rural Affairs Committee in the ICMSA, which deals with environmental issues related to farming. We seem to be having more catastrophic weather events. Like It is a huge challenge like for farmers, but I mean, if you even take Kilkenny City as an example, like, OK, we've solved the problem in Kilkenny City with the flood defences, and that's fantastic for the city and fantastic for the p- poor people who are living along by the river who are regularly flooded. But... If you look at what, what what's really happening is the water is just gushing through Kilkenny City and obviously that's going to spill out somewhere else along the way. And th- there's an issue like we've extreme weather and we also have an issue with planning over the years that I mean like the, the most suitable land for building houses is lovely flat level land and what's often that it's a floodplain. Mm. So I mean if you put concrete on top of a floodplain you've nowhere left for the river to spread out and soak you know it slows down the river. Um, so what, what we've done in most cases with towns is we've just uh, built up the banks to get the river to go through it much faster but then that causes a problem so you keep leapfrogging yourself down along so flooding is a huge issue but maybe we need to look at like and it's something that you know Declan Rice our CEO in, in Kilkenny Leader Partnership is looking into and we're looking into projects maybe that how to slow the flow and maybe we need to go back to those uplands or you know further up the river and maybe you know where we had weirs years ago like we're standing by one here like mm-hmm. that that used to feed two mills and it's very broken down and it's patchy but i mean if you're able to slow the water coming from the uplands to the lower lands to the flatter lands well maybe that's something we need to look at that maybe we need to think about it's happening in parts of england at the moment that they're actually paying farmers to allow their land to flood to slow the water coming down the rivers mm-hmm. so you know, it's probably a long way down the line, but maybe it's something we need to consider that rather than just building up these defences to gush river through cities and towns, that we, we, you know, use that money to pay farmers further back up mm. to, to allow their lands to flood, to slow the water and have a controlled release of the, of the water down the river. And keeping on topic of rivers and farms, I asked Dennis about farm practices and water quality in the River Nore, since, according to the EPA, the main problems are nitrogen and phosphorus getting into the river. These, they say, account for most of the water quality issues they come across. First of all, I'd like to clarify, I suppose, like farming is part of the problem. It's not the whole problem. And also farming has to be part of the solution. It's not the full solution either. 
Like we're here beside the Nore, there's farming land at both sides of it, so every river or stream in the country has to flow through farming land or, or some form of land, and that's where obviously the runoff from rain and that comes from the farmland and springs and that that are fed by farmland. We, we get battered a little bit too much maybe by that farming is responsible for everything. Farming, we're not denying farming is certainly part of the problem, but it's only part of the problem. Like we've other pressures on river, let it be peatlands and wastewater treatment plants and our own septic tanks at home and people, you know, using chemicals and that sort of thing, you know, incorrectly. So farming is, is definitely part of the problem, but it's, and it's also going to have to be part of the solution. Brendan McSorley previously mentioned some solutions that could help with protecting the water quality in the Noor. I've heard talk of buffer zones and things like that. Yeah, you see, uh, like a lot of farmers are, like I suppose the first thing we need to do, I suppose, is stop penalising farmers. And that's the thing that I get. I, I attend meetings all over the country and at local and county and national level. And one of the biggest problems we have is that, you know, because of the basic payment system that farmers get paid for every acre that they have of their land at a certain payment. That's historical reference. It's very complicated. We won't get into it. But if a farmer decides to leave an area along by a river or a stream or in the corner of a field aside, we'll say, for water protection or for air quality or for biodiversity or whatever reason, and he has an inspection, he's actually penalised for leaving that area back to nature. Uh, so, I mean, what's happening now is that if a, if a, uh, a piece of land on a farmer's uh, farm uh, would say, you know, it gets overgrown by bushes or scrub or rushes or whatever, like, it, the onus is on the farmer. If he wants to continue to get his full payment, he ends up getting the digger in and clearing out that area, which is completely in, uh, against what he wants to do and what everybody else wants him to do. Mm. So that's the first thing. We have to stop farmers being penalised being penalised for doing the right thing. So that would be a great stepping point. What are the things that are stopping that from happening? Well, like the, we, is that EU policy? It's, and it's stuff? both EU policy and national policy, and and we're actually I was actually in a meeting with our own local minister Malcolm Noonan yesterday, where we were talking to Malcolm, and he said like that he will ha- he he it's something that he's very aware of and trying to get changed. Uh, and the next thing then, like there's a new uh, REAP, it's called it's a it's a environmental scheme. It's a pilot program for this year, next year, and that's focusing on allowing farmers will say to widen uh, margins around hedgerows and around fields for biodiversity and also for water quality. Uh, If you go back about 20 years ago, as part of the REP scheme, there was an option for people to leave riparian zones along by rivers, and what that does is it breaks the flow. So if you have an extreme weather event, rather than somebody having spread fertiliser or slurry or something right up against the river, um, you know, they can leave, go back maybe 10, 20 metres from the river and leave that as a buffer strip to protect the water quality in the river. Mm. Um, so farmers have embraced all those things over the years, but they have changed and farmers have ended up getting penalised and have a land declared ineligible because of these schemes. And what we really need is we need a long-term scheme that if a farmer is willing to, you know, as we're standing here, we're three metres away from the bank of the river. If you, if you could have a scenario where the farmer was allowed to leave, you know, five, 10 metres of a buffer strip, to protect the river and not get penalised but it needs to be on a long term basis because some of these schemes have come and gone the appetite is there from farmers we just need to put the schemes in place that the farmers can, can embrace. Yeah. Um, the, another thing that I heard talked about was fencing off land to prevent the, the animals from getting into the river. Is that in place already, Dennis, or explain to me about that? Yeah, it's, it's in place for any farmer who's in, in, in derogation, which would be mainly dairy farmers who are stocked heavily. Like There is there is an onus on all those farmers, and at the moment the, the, the law states that you have to have all rivers and streams fenced off uh, 
a metre and a half from the top of the bank. Now that is going to be expanded also to, to more farmers, but as I, as I said, if you go back to the ASAP uh, advisors and the, their experience on the ground, they're out there talking to hundreds of farmers. One of the problems is that if, if farmers who have rented land will say, who may not have electricity on that land, um, you know, the, the only source of water on that land may be the river or stream that, that's flowing through that piece of land. So they obviously, you know, make up a drinking point from, from the river to satisfy the animals' needs. Now, it's something that we actually spoke to Malcolm on yesterday as well, yeah. and he was very enthusiastic about it, and he wanted further details. Uh, and the, the solution that we would have for, like, if, if, if the grant aid could be made available for those farmers to buy solar pumps, and that would be mobile, so if you have a piece of land, you put the solar pump in place, a pipe goes into the river, you pump the water, obviously solar power pumps the water, and you put a truck in the field. So that eliminates the need for the animals to go to the water. But for somebody who's, who's taking land short-term or maybe a small part-time farmer, they're expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, if we could get some sort of a, a financial help, the farmers are willing to do that, but it's just it's the financial cost of it. In Dennis's view, education is key to raising awareness amongst farmers, but not just educating farmers, but also us as consumers. Uh, farming has been driven in a certain direction. I mean, like if you want to get very philosophical, we've a cheap food policy in the world. Mm. And people want to do the right thing for the environment, yet when it comes to paying for their food. I mean, Eurostat came out with figures last year that stated that the 30 years ago, uh, the average person in Ireland was spending 38% of their disposable income on food. That's down now under 9%. So if you think of what people are spending on Sky and broadband and mobile phones and subscriptions to different channels versus what they're actually spending on food, it's actually getting very close, mm. which is, uh, you know, you really have to think what are people's priorities. Mm. But the consequence of cheap food is that farmers in other parts of the world in particular are gone into it's gone into a factory farming state like if you go to america at the moment and i dread if you could it'd be great but you can't but if you are in america at the moment if you drink a glass of milk in america it's probably coming from a cow that's indoors 365 days a year she's been injected with hormones probably every week or every two weeks uh, she's been fed genetically modified feed uh, you know you have a burger in america it's from an animal that's been both fed hormones and injected with hormones mm-hmm. You know, so do we want to get to that scenario in the world? And that's what cheap food policy, that's where it's, 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 dri- it's driving towards. I mean, if you take me, I'm a dairy farmer. My father was a mixed farmer before me. I concentrated on dairying. Um, but, I mean, I'm getting the same price for milk now as my father did 40 years ago. So, I mean, what are your options? I milk three times the number of cows that my father did t- to have less of an income than he'd had. Mm-hmm. So this is the way we're running faster to stand still. Um, but that's down to a cheap food policy, like and, and uh, like everybody wants to protest about the environment and all that. But when it goes to the shop, then to pick up their food, to pick up the cheapest food that's there. And I don't know. Some people are very good. They want organic and they're willing to pay a bit more. But I suppose the majority rules in most cases. Folks, it is hard to get us to change our behaviour. We still want, in general, we want cheap food. Um, you know, most of us probably eat too much food. We don't need probably half of what we eat. Um, I do think as a nation, we need to decide on what policy and how we want to manage the country. Um, so we can't have one policy for agriculture that clashes completely with the policy for biodiversity. That makes no sense. Um, and also we need to value what farmers are doing, not just in producing food, but in managing the landscape and in um, protecting and enhancing our biodiversity. So it makes no sense to me that they get penalised for leaving an area uh, out of production 
out of food production but it's in it's very valuable outside of that um so but that needs to be like addressed really quickly um it just it seems absolutely ridiculous and as we come to the end of the program i'm wondering how have we gotten from mills to salmon to hedgerows and farm walks to food only the river could have such interconnectivity because yeah. we're all part of the catchment, so every farm impacts on the catchment and all of us impact on the catchment as well and benefit from it as well. So, yeah, like every farm is drained in some shape or form. If it's a stream, if there's under land drains or whatever, it all flows into the into the Noor. Um So, yeah, everything that happens has an impact. And according to Michael Costigan, Clannacenny has experienced a positive impact on their water quality in the last few years. Ah, uh, the river, it's unreal the way the river cleaned up. I'd have no problem here passing my yard in taking down a glass and drinking a cup of, a glass of water out of the river. I'd, but I wouldn't do it years ago, but I would do it now. So if you want to become involved as a positive source of good for the River Noor, then check out norvision.ie for more details. The Noor Vision radio series is funded by Kilkenny Leader Partnership CLG through the Department of Rural and Community Development and the EU.